Let me open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, and we will be considering verses 22 through 30 this Lord's Day. One of the most comforting truths in the work we do within Christ's kingdom is this. It is Christ who builds His own church. For in the council of eternity, the Son of God covenanted with His Father to accomplish redemption on behalf of all those undeserving sinners that the Father would give him to save. From before the foundation of the world, Christ was the Lamb slain to secure their salvation. He was appointed to be their anointed prophet, priest, and king. All who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and in time came to trust Him whether in the Old Testament or whether in the New Testament period, all those who have come to trust Him have been united to Him as His people, which is called the church. Thus, the work of building the church is ultimately not yours nor mine, but Christ's. The work of reformation within the church is ultimately not yours nor mine, but Christ's. Dear ones, what a burden is lifted from our shoulders when we rest in that truth. For we are tempted to think, if only I had been more persuasive, if only I had said the right thing in that situation, that particular person would have come to Christ, or that person would have been led to the truth, or that person would have forsaken his sin. Without a doubt, each of us who have been united to Christ are love-bound and duty-bound to be faithful instruments and tools whom He may use to build His church. But let us never forget, dear ones, that it is not the hammer and the saw that is the builder. It is the carpenter that is the builder. Therefore, if the work of Christ's church does not go the way that we would like for it to go, if it takes longer than we would like for it to take, if it means that rejection, persecution, or the slander of false tongues should accompany the work of building and reforming Christ's church, we need not worry nor fret. For Christ is building His church. Dear ones, He makes no mistakes, for it is all going according to His eternal and infinitely wise plan. I have, dear ones, to remind myself on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, when my frustration level rises sinfully, it's not my church. It's Christ's church. When things don't go the way that I want them to go, it's according to God's timetable, not mine. He simply calls us, dear ones, to be tools. To be faithful tools that He can use to glorify Himself. You see, we are expendable. Only Christ is not expendable. From our text in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 30, we shall see that the Lord builds His church 
through the following means. Number one, by his mighty acts of power. Mark 8, 22 through 26. Secondly, by the faithful testimony of his people. In Mark 8, verses 27 through 30. Thirdly, by his promises. We switch over to the parallel passage at, at that point. Matthew 16, verse 18. And finally, the Lord builds his church by his gifts. Matthew 16:19. Now, I will only be able to cover the first two means by which the Lord builds his church this Lord's Day, and we will look at the last two means there in part two of this particular sermon. And so, the first point. Christ builds his church by his mighty acts of power. Look with me at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every, every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. Having seen from our previous text in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21, that Christ's miracles reveal the compassion of Christ, the obstinacy of the Pharisees, and the weakness of the disciples, the Lord now begins to prepare his disciples in the coming chapters of this gospel of Mark for his death, resurrection, and ascension. We might assume by this time that the disciples were well prepared for Christ's death. But as we shall see in a very short time in a passage to come, namely in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, they were not prepared for his death. The Lord now increasingly begins to talk about his future work in building his church. You see, Christ has now spent over two years working with these men, teaching them, instructing them, training them. And the time is drawing near for their final exam. That is Christ's death and his resurrection. The Lord enters Bethsaida, and there a blind man is brought to Christ by friends or family members who beseech him to touch this man in order that he might be healed. Now, as I mentioned in a previous sermon, there are circumstances about the healing of the blind man in this particular chapter that are particularly similar to the healing of the man that was deaf and had the speech impediment. In Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. What are those similarities? Let me list a few for you. First of all, both are brought to Christ by friends or family members. Mark 8, 22, this man, it says, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him. These men didn't come apparently on their own power, their own ability, but were brought by others. Secondly, both sets of friends or family members specifically beseech the Lord to heal by touching 
or laying his hand upon the one who is infirmed. And again, look at Mark 8.22. The end of verse 22, and besought him to touch him. They besought Christ to touch the blind man. Thirdly, in both cases, both men are led by Jesus away from the crowd. Look at Mark 8.23. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Fourthly, in both cases, the Lord spat upon or applied the saliva to the problem area. Mark 8.23. And when he had spit on his eyes, Literally, when he had spit into his eyes. Fifthly, both are forbidden from immediately making the miracle known. Mark 8.26, after the healing, it says, And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Now, due to these similarities, I would suggest that the Lord is teaching similar truths to his disciples and to those who witnessed these events. Namely, that we ought not to think that Christ is limited to certain means in building and reforming his church, as if Healing only comes by Christ touching or laying his hands upon those who are ill and sick. As if Christ could not heal by any other means than that. And as we saw last Lord's Day, when the Lord repeats miracles that are so similar to those previously performed, the Lord is simply emphasizing this point. He's trying to drive the point home. Just as when he multiplied the bread and the fish to feed the 4,000 after having fed the 5,000, so there are circumstances in this particular miracle that are so similar to the previous miracle that the Lord wants again us not to forget that He is the one who heals and sanctifies and blesses and that our faith not be put in the means as if the means themselves were inherently efficacious. Apart from the blessing of Christ, there are no means that are efficacious. It is through Christ alone that it is so. Dear ones, when we come asking that Christ might bless us, that blessing may come in ways of which we might, be, we might personally disapprove. We may personally not like the means by which the Lord brings His blessings into our lives. We may not like the trials and the afflictions and the tribulations and the hardships but we're not the ones who determine the means it is left to Christ who builds the church and reforms the church to determine the means. Like Naaman of old, we may prefer to be cleansed of our leprosy by washing ourselves in the clean and comfortable rivers that are near us rather than the, in the dirty waters of the Jordan River. Like Naaman, we may become angry at the ways in which the Lord would heal us and sanctify us personally as a Christian or corporately as a church. But beloved, we must learn like Naaman. We must learn like that deaf man who had the speech impediment. And we must learn like this blind man that it is not we who determine 
the circumstances leading to our conversion or bringing about our sanctification that is entirely the exclusive prerogative of the Lord who builds his church when and how he chooses. Why, he even uses the reproach and the contempt of others to promote, to build, and to reform his church, signified in spitting, as we learned from the previous miracle, according to Numbers chapter 12, verse 14, and Deuteronomy 25, 9. He uses even these means to grow us in Christ and test our faith, to see if we are willing to suffer with Christ who endured that reproach, the spitting of others for our sake. Beloved, the goal, the goal in this process of sanctification is to bring us to the place where our communion with Jesus Christ is so important to us that we can say with the Apostle Paul, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship or communion of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. You see, the, the goal, the end toward which we are striving and toward which God is directing us in our sanctification is to be conformed to Christ, not only in power, in display of power, which we all want, of course. We want to be and see Christ's power more evident in our life, but also in being conformed to His sufferings. Being like Him in His sufferings. Having fellowship with Him and communion with Him in His sufferings. And that means being spat upon. Do you truly, do you truly desire, dear ones, to know Christ and to commune with Christ? Or is your desire to know and commune with Christ determined by your comfort zone? Dear ones, hear me well. A person's desire truly to know Christ and to commune with Christ is gauged by his willingness to suffer for Christ and for his cause and for his truth. What about the dissimilarities between the healing of the deaf man who had the speech impediment and of this blind man? Well, there is one striking dissimilarity. This blind man is healed in stages rather than being healed immediately. Notice in Mark 8, verses 23-25, after having spit on his eyes, it says, and put his, feet, his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. <clears throat> Perhaps this healing was performed in stages <clears throat> in order to turn this man's faith to Christ all the more. For if this man had true faith, he would not run away in bitterness after having received a partial healing. Being resentful toward Christ, bemoaning the fact that Christ could only heal him partially. But if he had true faith, he would be of the mind that if he brought him out of total darkness to partial light, he was certainly capable of taking him from partial light to complete light. And so his faith would be even made stronger. He would be even encouraged to cling to Christ more 
through this miracle that came in stages. There was there is the healing of the blind, which occurred immediately, as in Mark 10.52, in the case of blind Bartimaeus. There were no stages to his healing. He was healed right there immediately upon the spot. And then there's the healing of the blind that occurs in stages, as we have here in Mark chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. Likewise, there is the immediate healing of our spiritual eyes, wherein we are immediately justified, pardoned of all of our sins, and declared righteous in Christ, which cannot be improved upon. A standing which is secure once and for all through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But there is also the healing of our spiritual eyes, wherein we are gradually sanctified, growing in the grace and in the knowledge of Christ through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And dear ones, just as it is the prerogative of Christ alone to determine the means by which he will build and reform his church. So it is his exclusive right to determine the time frame in which he will build and reform his church. Of course, that does not mean that we are to, in the meantime, slough off and do nothing. For dear ones, there is a corresponding relationship between seeing and understanding His revealed will and between learning and applying His revealed will and vice versa. That's why the Lord said in John chapter 7, verse 17, and asked how, whether His doctrine was from from God or from man, whether he spoke of himself or from God, he said, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. If any man is willing to do his will. So the relationship of putting into practical, everyday experience, applying what you know and you learn is certainly there's a correlation between that and growing in our knowledge of Christ. In fact, if we are not putting into practice what we are learning, there will be a corresponding darkness that overcomes our mind and our understanding. But to the degree that we do apply the Word of God, to that degree, the Lord will give greater light and understanding of His Word. And I would have you remember, beloved, that the sanctification of us all is in this respect the same. It is a lifelong process which is not perfect in this life. This process begins at conversion and it ends at our death. And it is always moving in that direction, growing, growing, but is never perfect in this life. But it will be, and we will be able to see clearly in the light of the glory of Christ when we leave this life and stand before the Lord. And we will know then as we have been known. Dear ones, the Lord is building and reforming His church by His mighty acts that are recorded in the Scriptures, which we have read even one today. And as men take, or women or children, take the Word of God, and as they read these mighty acts, the Holy Spirit works in their minds and in their hearts to persuade them that what is written there, is true, and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And as a result, they embrace Christ. And so they are written for that purpose to drive us to Christ. 
But dear ones, don't forget the mighty acts of God that are all around you. The mighty acts which He performs on behalf of those that He loves and calls unto Himself. Let us never forget that His mighty acts, dear ones, are a means by which He He does build His kingdom. And dear ones, I would ask you, are His mighty acts in Scripture that are all around you Are His mighty acts which are recorded in the Scripture having any effect upon you? Are they reforming you? Or are you yet so blind that you cannot see what Christ is doing all about you? Are you so buried in the gloom and doom of this world that you cannot see the glory of Christ and the big picture as to what He is accomplishing? The second main point is this. Christ builds His church by the faithful testimony of His people. Consider with me Mark 8, verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went out and His disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi, And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. That last verse we will consider next week. Why would the Lord not want the disciples to tell others that he was the Christ? <clears throat> so we'll have to hold our, our question at this point for another time. From Bethsaida, the Lord proceeds to towns that lay in the northern part, the extreme northern part of Israel, there near Caesarea Philippi. After spending some time in prayer, according to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 18, the Lord quizzes the disciples with a question they cannot afford to miss. They had witnessed his miracles as demonstrations of his power and as demonstrations of his compassion. They had heard him preach like no one else had ever preached. They had observed his character and his speech in private contexts as well as in public contexts. And now the Lord wants to hear their sincere testimony concerning Himself as He prepares them for His death and His resurrection. Are they ready to face His death and His resurrection? Are they ready to talk about His death and His resurrection? The Lord begins by asking His disciples a more general question. Whom do men say that I am? In Mark 8, verse 27. And they respond by saying, Some say you are John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the other prophets that has returned to life again. In other words, On the part of many, Jesus was viewed as being an extraordinary man. One of the prophets come to life again. Certainly a supernatural aspect to Christ's ministry that they could not deny. But still, only a man. 
just a man. It would appear that the Jews at this time could only see their Messiah sent by God as being one who would be their political and military savior to rescue them from the dominion of Rome. You see, they had so misinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures that they could not recognize in his words and in his deeds that he was the Son of God. They did not understand that the Messiah was not only a king over a spiritual kingdom, they had understood a political kingdom, but the truth was a king over a spiritual kingdom, but that he was also a prophet and a priest. The Messiah was in one person, victorious conquer, conqueror and suffering servant. He was in one person, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And those who believed Christ to be one of the prophets raised from the dead were in some sense sincere followers of Christ. He had quite a following and many held this opinion of Christ. But again, dear ones, mere sincerity is not enough. For they were sincerely wrong about who Christ was. Were the disciples also sincere, but sincerely wrong? Well, let's listen to the response that they give. Now the Lord narrows the focus of the question, not because he was ignorant of what they would say or what they believed in their own hearts, but in order to stimulate and defraud their faith, he asked the question, for their benefit, not his. You see, dear ones, there is a powerful benefit to a verbal testimony for Jesus Christ and for his cause and for his truth. When we are placed in the crucible to stand for Christ, there is something dynamic that happens to the Christian, to one who truly loves the Lord. If they blow it in that situation, they're ashamed, they repent of it, and they'll do better the next time. But if they stand in the face of that opposition, if they give a powerful and accurate testimony for Christ, as simple as it may be, this is a very simple testimony for Jesus Christ that is given in this text. But it is one that is so faithful and true. There is, dear ones, in that such a, a, a charge, a, uh, an infusion of God's grace that happens when we bear testimony to Christ. We're uplifted. Others around us are uplifted. The church is reformed and built again and again and again by a faithful testimony for Jesus Christ. Note that the Lord here puts the question to all of the disciples. Now, that particular point will become clearly significant in the next sermon. It's very important we understand that when Peter responds here, he's responding to a question that was put to all of the disciples and that Peter responds as spokesman for all of the disciples. The Lord Jesus says, But whom say ye? In the plural, ye. Whom say all of you that I am? In Mark 8.29. Peter responds. Peter was the first to do a lot of things, as you recall. Sometimes uh, they were not always the wisest things that proceeded from his mouth, as we will see in the Mount of Transfiguration. He puts his 
foot in his mouth, but here he speaks representing the, the other disciples and what flows from his mouth flows from his heart, what he sincerely believes and is a powerful testimony to the truth concerning Christ. In Mark's Gospel, it is recorded that Peter said, Thou art the Christ. In Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 16.16, it is recorded, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, this is not the only time in which Peter speaks on behalf of the disciples. Uh, Many times we find Peter being the first one to speak. So we ought not to think that simply because he speaks, he's not representing the other disciples. In fact, Peter spoke very similarly. If you want to flip over to John chapter 6, verse 66. There was another very critical time in the ministry of Christ where many of his followers departed from him. Verse 66 says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, see, unto the twelve, Will ye, plural, also go away? Verse 68, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He again speaks on behalf of all of the disciples. So this isn't the first time that Christ received this testimony from the lips of Peter that we find here in Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel. He had done so previously right after the feeding of the 5,000. But the Lord now wants to know again because His death is approaching. He He wants to know by way of their confession and their testimony, their affirmation, who do you believe that I am? Peter's testimony scores an A+ on this quiz, for it was a testimony that both explicitly and implicitly declared that Jesus alone was the eternal Son of God, who in the covenant of redemption was appointed to be the anointed prophet, priest, and king. He was anointed to be the prophet to reveal all of God's will to his people concerning salvation, concerning doctrine, concerning worship, concerning church government, and concerning ethical standards to live by. He was appointed to be the priest of his people to secure their salvation through his life and his, his active righteousness. And through his death and his passive righteousness in dying and suffering for his people, taking the curse upon himself and then continuing to intercede on their behalf forever and ever. And he was appointed to be the king to govern His church, to rule His church according to the rules, the laws which He has given as prophet to His church, and to crush all of His and their enemies. That's blown out, but that's what Peter was affirming when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Anointed One the Messiah. Thou art the Son of the living God. Dear ones, I would submit to you that it's not only important that we affirm, therefore, that Jesus Christ is our priest. 
because we have a trunk, truncated priest. We have a truncated Christ, if he is not prophet and king as well. But that we as well affirm that as our anointed one, he has given us the revealed will of God to live according to, to live by. That we are not left to our own designs and inventions in worship, in doctrine, or in government. That he has given those to us in his word. But if we do not acknowledge Christ to be our prophet, who has revealed to us his will, then we will not look as we ought to find his will concerning these things. And if we do not believe that Christ is our King, we will have again an amputated faith. A faith that can barely stand, if at all. If we do not understand that Christ is our King, who has come to rule and to defend us, to subdue us unto Himself and to crush all of His enemies. Dear ones, this truth of which Peter here speaks, I submit to you, is the very foundation upon which Christ's church is built and upon which Christ's church is reformed. It is built and reformed upon the basis of Christ himself who is the builder and the reformer. It is not the means. It is the person. It is the power of God and of Christ that establishes and institutes the church and builds the church and conforms the church to His image and brings the church to that point where she is without spot or blemish, a bride to be united to the Savior on that last day. Dear ones, without this truth, there is no joy. Without this truth, there is no peace. Without this truth, there is no righteousness. Without this truth, there is no victory. Without this truth, dear ones, there is no life. Only He who is the eternal Son of God can perfectly speak to us the mind of God in all areas of faith and life. Only He who is the Son of God can perfectly offer a sacrifice that will satisfy the infinite justice of a holy God. Only He who is the Son of God can perfectly govern His church in doctrine, worship, and government and crush all magistrates and false religions beneath His feet. Dear ones, if this is not your sincere testimony, if this is not what flows from your heart and comes out of your speech, search your hearts today. Because this is the expression of one who truly embraces Jesus Christ in all of His offices. And the living God invites you to receive as a free gift this Christ that was testified by Peter on behalf of the disciples today. Receive Him. He is offered to each of you. As you hear this invitation extended. If you do sincerely make this testimony, then realize that this is not the result of your inherent wisdom and knowledge. You didn't come to embrace Christ. You didn't come to understand these things because you are so wise, because you are so smart, because you have so many gifts and graces and abilities. You came to embrace these truths because it was revealed to you, graciously and freely revealed to you by the Lord. And to take credit in our, in our spiritual aptitude 
our intellectual knowledge, our graces, our gifts, is to tear down the work and the person of Jesus Christ. It is to discredit Jesus Christ in his offices. For this is what Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 declares. The Lord declared to Peter after Peter testified the good testimony and good confession of faith. The Lord Jesus said, Two, Peter, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Dear ones, Christ not only built his church by giving us the faith to embrace him alone for eternal salvation, but also by testifying before others that Christ is is alone the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by Him. In Revelation 12.11, as I close, there we find the faithful testimony given by the witnesses, the martyrs for Jesus Christ, as they do battle against the beast, and all of his forces. And they overcame him, that is the beast, the dragon. And the beast, no doubt, who is the emissary of the dragon. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Their testimony, dear ones, was threefold. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. There was an objective testimony. Looking to the work of Jesus Christ, the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ that cannot be added to or taken from. There was that objective testimony. There was a verbal testimony. And by the word of their testimony, Not by the silence of their testimony, but by the word of their testimony. A faithful testimony, like Peter's, that was uttered on behalf of Christ and his truth. And then a practical testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. They applied what they were learning. They didn't merely have a verbal testimony with nothing to show for it in their lives, but they were willing to die for that testimony. And dear ones, if we're willing to die for that testimony, we must be willing to live for that testimony. We must be willing in life, whatever God would bring into our lives, to stand for His cause, His truth to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king. We are, dear ones, then, to witness for Christ by both our words and our deeds. Let us then go forth today in the strength and in the knowledge that Christ builds and reforms His church. He is the one who builds and reforms his church, although he uses his marvelous acts of power and although he uses our testimony, he is the one who will build his church. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank Thee this day for the power of Thy Word, the power of Thy Spirit. We thank Thee that Thou dost make the Word to come alive and to live. For the same Word, O Father, is preached, and some do not heed it. Some do not hear it. Some do not care about it. Some grow deaf to it and hardened to it. But, O Lord our God, We are thankful that Thou hast made our hearts to receive it with joy and thanksgiving. 
We are thankful that, O Lord our God, that Thou hast has given to us this day a fresh new look at Christ, who is the builder and the reformer of His church. That we might not take these prerogatives, that we might not be as an antichrist to usurp those particular rights of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that, Father, we would walk in all humility, following in the paths of Christ, adhering to Him who is the Christ, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, and son of the living God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.